Isaiah was, uh, was somebody who ministered in the 8th century BC, and, and some of the words that he spoke uh, directly get fulfilled or fulfilled in a, in a deeper way at Christmas. And so we're going to look at how this, how this plays out, and, and I believe what you'll see is just how worthy Jesus is of our worship. So uh, let's, let's pray once again as we begin. Lord, as we spend this time in your word, I pray that you would speak to us and work in us and move in us and that you would, you would open up our eyes, Lord. I pray that we would meet with you today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, uh, we're in Acts, or sorry, not Acts. I'm used to saying that. We're not in Acts. We're in Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. So a little bit of context for you. Um, I, Isaiah, again, I, I, like I said, this is 8th century B.C., uh, we're, we're in the kingdom of Judah, which is kind of the southern half of what is modern-day Israel. So that kingdom split into two. Judah was the, the southern half. And the king at that time was a man named Ahaz. And Ahaz was, uh, he was, he was a descendant of King David, the great King David. You may have heard of him. But he was not like David. Ahaz was a, well, he was a wicked man. He was a rebellious, a king who was rebellious against God in all kinds of ways, including sacrificing one of his own sons to a false god. So not exactly father of the year material, this guy. Not a, not a great guy. And at one point in his life, there was a, a political and, and military crisis. Two neighboring kingdoms ganged up, and they wanted to destroy Ahaz. They wanted to overpower him and take over Judah. And, uh, and Ahaz was quite stressed about this. He believed that his salvation would come from the mighty superpower of Assyria. You think about Today, a small nation having, having some troubles, being harassed and going to a large superpower nation like the United States and saying, hey, can you help us? That's what Ahaz was doing with Assyria. Now God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and literally tells him, Ahaz, keep calm. This is way before the Brits, you know, said, keep calm and carry on. Way before public health officers said, you know, keep calm and wash your hands. God says, you got to chill out, Ahaz. You got to calm down because I've got this. I'm going to take care of this. Those two kingdoms, those two kings that you're so worried about, I- I'm going to handle this for you. Now that's, that's kind of the situation. Uh, let's pick it up in Isaiah 7, verse 10 to 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So God says to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. I want you to know this. I want you to know that I've got your back, that this plot of these two kings will not come to pass. I want you to be assured of this. But what does Ahaz say? 
He says, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't ask God for a sign. I, I wouldn't put him to the test in that way. And it sounds, it sounds kind of pious, right? It sounds, it sounds kind of holy. It sounds like Ahaz is, is kind of like really considerate of God's time, you know? Like it reminds me of, what I've, I've heard people say, oh, I, I wouldn't ask for anything for myself because, you know, God's kind of too busy. He's got enough on his hands. He doesn't need to worry about me. First of all, this isn't like Bruce Almighty where, you know, God's email, like the, the email box is filled with like prayer requests and he has to go through it. It's not like, he's not like that. He's greater than that. But he actually asks us, invites us to bring our requests to him. He wants us to do this. And so this attitude of, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't put God out, is actually just disobedience. It, it, it's, it's hard-heartedness towards him. It, it, these polite-sounding words mask a heart that is far from him. And you think about it, if you, um, if you invite someone over for dinner, and, and they, they keep on telling you, oh, no, 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 we, we, couldn't, we couldn't impose on you. I know you're far too busy for this. Maybe, but, but maybe they actually just don't want to go for dinner at your house, right? Maybe they don't trust that you can make a meal that won't send them to the hospital. <laughs> if I ever invite you to dinner and Carolyn isn't cooking, that should probably be your concern. That should probably be your request. Right? It's, it's this polite, like we're, we're Canadians, right? This is what we do. We have these, these nice ways of kind of letting people down. That's what Ahaz is doing. He doesn't, he doesn't want God. He doesn't want God in this situation. He doesn't believe God. He, does, he just doesn't want to deal with God at all. It's that, that's why Isaiah tells him, look, you're just, you're putting the Lord, you're putting the Lord to the test by not asking him for a sign. Your, your hard-heartedness is what's going to aggravate God here. And, and so God says, well, actually, I'm, I am going to give you a sign, Ahaz. Even if you don't ask for one, I'm, I'm going to give one to you anyways. And here's the sign. That, that a virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son. The son is going to be called Emmanuel. That's a Hebrew word that means God with us. So this, this child somehow bears this title or bears this function. And, and Isaiah tells him that before this child is old enough to choose the right and reject the wrong, that God's going to have dealt with these two kings. So, so this, this child who has this title, God with us, is going to represent God's salvation for Judah, that, he, that this, this plot of the two kings isn't going to come to pass, but it also is going to mean judgment on the other hand too. Because, because God tells Ahaz that actually Assyria is going to come, this, this nation you want to rescue, they're going to come, but they're going to inflict pain and suffering on you. If you read on in Isaiah 7, that's what it's all about, that Assyria is going to come, and, and it's actually not going to be, you know, Ahaz is going to be saved from the plot of these two kings, but, but it's, it's going to be judgment because Assyria is not going to stop there. They're going to come after Judah as well. The point here is, is that this sign represents God's presence with his people, but that presence can mean different things. If, if you love the Lord and you seek him, then his presence is, is good news. But if, if you reject him, if your heart is heart towards him, then his presence is actually not good news. As with the case of Ahaz, his disbelief is going to mean that when God comes, it's not going to be great for him. Now, the verse that we probably go to right away, is, of course, is, is verse 14, right? And we ask, what, what child is this? How many of you, when I say that, you have a Christmas song in your head right away? What child is this? Pretty good singing, right? Um, that's what we do. We, we read this verse, and right away we jump to Christmas. 
Right? That's what we do. And that's what, that's what kids do on Christmas Day. I remember when I was growing up, Christmas Day, we didn't open our presents until Christmas Day, and we had to wait till my dad woke up, which was like at 10 a.m. And then even then, we had to all act out the Christmas play. We had to act out Luke 1 and 2, right? We had to act the whole thing out. When we gathered together, this is the thing about being a pastor's family, right? A pastor's kid. We'd gather together as, as a Tyson family, our larger family, and we'd have to go around, and everybody would have to say what they were thankful for and how God had worked in their lives. And as kids, we're like, who cares? There's presents. There's presents under the tree. Why are we opening those presents, right? You want to jump right to that. Jump right to the good stuff. Jump right to Christmas. That's what we want to do with this verse. We want to jump right to Christmas. But listen, this, this whole sign, this thing about this virgin and this child, it has to mean something to Ahaz. It has to mean something in the 8th century. It has something to do with these kings and with, with Assyria and Ahaz's own unbelief. So some people think that this, this child who is born, uh, perhaps is Isaiah's own son. Maybe it's, uh, it's Ahaz's son. Maybe Hezekiah, but there's some issues with, with that in, in other ways. Uh, maybe it's some other child born at that time named Emmanuel. Or, or maybe, maybe it's simply that, that God is saying that when a, when a, if a child is born now, by the time he is old enough, to kind of be accountable for his actions, that, that, that this, this plot is going to be thwarted, that God's going to come and, and do what he said he's going to do. The point is this immediacy, that by the time a child is born and is accountable, it's going to happen. Various, n- nobody can kind of agree on what exactly is going on here, but, but those are some ideas. But the word that we probably latch on to more than anything else here is, is the word virgin. Now, the Hebrew word for virgin here is alma. And that actually is not a word that most directly translates as, as virgin. Uh, it also isn't the, the most natural word for woman or for wife, for example. It's kind of an in-between term. It means essentially a young, marriageable woman. The, uh, the English, uh, I guess, kind of version of that would be maiden, old-fashioned kind of term. A maiden. There's, there's the connotation of virginity in a Jewish or Christian kind of moral environment. You're, you're looking at a virgin here, someone who's not married yet, but, but not, it doesn't mean that directly, but it has that kind of connotation. Does that kind of make sense? So that's kind of the Hebrew word that's, that's used here. And so some people think that maybe this word is used here because... It, uh, it's kind of an open, it's an open word. It can be fulfilled in Ahaz's day in, in, some, in some sense where this birth is maybe outside of the normal pattern of how this happens, but it also leaves room for greater and further developments down the line. Because that is actually what we see with this whole theme of, and then this image of a child in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, we read once again about Emmanuel, and it, it's a reference to the land. Your land, O Emmanuel. This is Emmanuel, dude. He owns the land. Somehow it's his land. There's like this royal imagery. And then in Isaiah 9, pretty well-known Christmas passage as well, we read that a son is born to us, a child is given, the government will be on his shoulders, he will reign forever, he will be called, you know, everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God, those kinds of things. Now listen, Whatever else is going on in the 8th century uh, with, with this, there was no king born in, in Ahaz's time who reigned forever, 
who could be called mighty God. This is clearly going beyond the context of the 8th century. Again, you have an initial fulfillment, and we're not exactly sure what that looked like, but you have an initial fulfillment with room for greater and further and future developments. Does that make sense? That's kind of how biblical prophecy often works. You've got some initial fulfillment with room for further developments. Now, before we move on to the next section, here's, here's one of my takeaways from Isaiah 7. God sees the heart, right? He, he sees through our polite-sounding words. He's not interested in niceties. He's not interested in your holy-sounding words. He is interested in your obedience. He's interested in your authentic faith. That's, that's what he's looking for. He sees right through that other stuff. And this isn't just like an abstract idea. This has everything to do with, with the way that you live life. The posture of your heart determines whether God's presence and work in your life will be experienced as good news or bad news. The posture of your heart will determine whether God's presence in your life is experienced as good news or as bad news. He sees your heart. He knows it. It's so crucial that our hearts are right and pure before him. That was the deal with Ahaz. That was his situation. Now let's fast forward 700 years or so later. Let's go to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. If you've got your Bibles, you can open it up there. Luke 1, 26 to 38. Well-known kind of passage uh, at Christmas the birth of Jesus being announced. Give me one sec. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. You know, there's, there's something I kind of want to deal with right off the bat here. There, there's an idea out there that what happens here is immoral somehow on God's part. That, that here is Mary uh, impregnated without her kind of having any say in it against, against her will. I am um, on Facebook with a guy I went to Bible college with, but apparently he is departed significantly from Christian faith in the years since. And he posted a little meme this week, and it's a, it's a picture of Mary, kind of one of those classical, classic pictures of Mary. And, uh, and it said, I feel like there's a four-letter word for when you impregnate someone without their consent, but I can't remember the word. 
Now, a couple things about this. One is that it is, it is wildly off base, totally inappropriate um, to suggest that there's anything like sexual intercourse taking place in this, in this passage. And it's, it's totally inconsistent with everything we know about God's character throughout the scriptures. And, and this actually gets at an important objection that people have about the, we'll call it the virgin conception. That's what it really is. We call it the virgin birth, but the virgin conception. And, and the, the age-old objection is that this is just a copycat story of pagan myths. That you've got these old stories, these old myths that you would have some god coming and, and having sexual intercourse with a woman and the resulting birth is something like a demigod. So those kinds of stories, those existed in the ancient world. And people have said, well, the, the, the Christian origin kind of story is, is just a version of that. It's just a copycat of that. It's a very, very different thing here. Mary's pregnancy is, is completely non-sexual. Um, it's, it's the Holy Spirit at work in her. There, there's nothing sexual here, otherwise it wouldn't be a, a virgin birth or a virgin conception anymore. This, this thing that's going on here is, is unparalleled. It's unique in history. And the other thing to speak to this is that, is that Mary does actually have a say in the matter. You know, the, the angel comes, Gabriel comes and announces to her that she is highly favored with the Lord. And then he tells her that she will conceive and will give birth. She's, he's telling her what will happen. He's not telling her what has already happened. He's not saying, Mary, you're pregos. Right? He tells her what will happen. And then did you catch what Mary said at the end? She says to him, I am the Lord's servant May your word to me be fulfilled. Here's Mary saying what God intends to do. I'm, I'm all in. I'm fully on board with this. In fact, as you go on in Luke 1, Mary sings this song of praise where she glorifies God. She's overwhelmed with gratitude. She sees how God has lifted her up from this low place. There's, a, there's an English scholar named Karen Swallow Pryor. She says that with Mary's words of let it be, we have what just might be the first recorded instance of verbal consent in human history. And considering the times, ancient Middle Eastern cultures were not known for their justice towards women, this verbal consent to being the bearer, bearer of the Christ child is quite remarkable indeed. So what we have here is, is a non-sexual pregnancy unique and unparalleled, one that Mary consents to, in fact, is, is overwhelmed with gratitude for. So a very, very different kind of thing than some of those objections that are raised. Now I want to look at, at Matthew's version of this same story because it, it's similar but has, has one or two interesting differences. So we're going to flip to Matthew 1, verses 18 to 23. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So generally, same story, right? Mary's pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, here it's a little bit different because Joseph is, is one of the central characters in the story. His whole dilemma, that's what's kind of being dealt with. But then you have this, this addition at the end where Matthew says that all of this took place to fulfill what God had spoken through Isaiah 700 years before. That those words that we read at the beginning have now come to their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. Now a few things about this. One is again the key word virgin. The word that Matthew uses, and he's quoting the Old Testament version of the New, the, not the Old Testament version of the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word that he uses, the Greek word, is a word that more directly means virgin. And this gets at another age-old objection that people have raised about the Christian belief in the virgin conception, that it's based on a mistranslation of the Hebrew word. That Matthew essentially invented a story to fit what he thought the Old Testament was saying, but he was mistaken because the Hebrew word Alma doesn't actually mean virgin. So Matthew's just kind of fabricating the story. That's, that's the objection. Now we've already seen that the Hebrew word has connotations of virginity, leaves it open for future developments like right here. This is how biblical prophecy works, right? And so here we see how that word virgin is expressing in a deeper and fuller way what God intended in Isaiah, without, being, without it being constrained to that in Ahaz's day. Does that make sense? So it just, I, you're probably not going to be having a conversation with somebody and somebody goes, how can you believe in the virgin birth? Don't you know that Alma doesn't mean virgin? That's probably not going to happen. But if it ever does, now, you've, now you know. Now you've got something. Um, the, the, the bigger thing, though, here is, is that it's not just the word virgin that connects Isaiah with what's going on here in the birth of Jesus. Remember how we talked about that sign how the sign functions in Isaiah. The sign is the birth of this child, and as a sign, it really reveals the, the state of someone's heart, right? It, it, it reveals where someone's at. So it can, be, it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, depending on where someone is at. It's kind of like, I mean, if you, if you call, if, if the police show up, and, and let's say we're, we're talking about good, upright police, if you're a criminal, blatantly breaking a law and the police show up, that's bad news, right? Hey, the police are with us. Not great. But if you are somebody who is, let's say, a store owner or a home owner and you're under siege by criminals and the police show up, it's good news, right? Kind of depends on, on, on where you're at, depends on, on, on what you're doing, on your character. And so it's, it's kind of the same deal with Jesus. He, he is a sign that reveals the state of the human heart. So in, in Luke, after Jesus is born, God reveals to a man named Simeon that this child, Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Peter says the same thing in his letter in, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, now to you who believe, he compares Jesus to a stone, to a rock. He says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
See, Jesus can either be the cornerstone of your life that sets everything else in order, or he can be a stumbling block that kind of gets, you just can't get around it, you can't get through it. The presence of Jesus reveals the state of the human heart. That's, that's what a sign does. That's what the sign of the virgin birth does, is it, is it reveals either our belief or our lack of belief. And this seems like a good place to kind of pause and, and talk about some other, a couple of other objections that people have to the virgin conception. We talked about a few of those already. Uh, objections like uh, God is immoral in this. This is just a copycat of ancient pagan myths. It's based on a mistranslation of the Hebrew. Here's another, here's another objection people sometimes bring. And, and by, I want, I'm talking about this because it's not just that Jesus is a sign that reveals belief or unbelief, but even the manner of his birth. The virgin birth reveals that. So a couple other objections. One is that the virgin conception is a later development in Christian thinking. This is oftentimes the, the charge. This is oftentimes the, the accusation that all Christians just came up with that later. The early Christians, the real Christians, didn't believe crazy things like that. It was just the later church. It was Constantine's fault. That's, that's, that's where it is. Or, hey, this is, this is just a secondary thing. This isn't like something Christians have to believe. It's not really an, uh, an important thing. It's kind of a secondary thing that you can take it or leave it. So here's the issue with that. I mean, Matthew and Luke both write about it, both tell us about the virgin birth in the first century. And even just literally speaking, their stories, they're, they're different, right? They're not just like slightly different. They, they tell the same story, but from very different perspectives, which from a literary point of view means that there's a tradition that goes back way further even than what they're writing. In fact, church history says that Luke was in contact with Mary. Mary was his source. He went right back to the source here. So, so it goes back right from the beginning. And then you've got the Apostles' Creed. This document that kind of goes, here are what Christians believe as central articles of faith. And there's only a few events in Jesus' life that are mentioned there. And the virgin birth is one of them. Right from the start, this is what Christians believed. And it was pretty central. It was, it was pretty crucial. But that's not the biggest objection that people have. The biggest objection people, I think, have today to the virgin birth of Jesus, is that we simply know that these things don't happen, right? Virgins don't have children. That's not a thing. Christopher Hitchens was an atheist, an author, one of the world's most famous atheists before his death about a decade ago. And he apparently would sometimes, he would debate with a Christian, and he would start out by asking the Christian, do you believe that Jesus was miraculously conceived and born of a virgin? And if the Christian said yes, then he would simply say, I rest my case. That to him was enough. Enough said, you believe this? You, you think that something happened that every 10-year-old and above knows can't happen? You're an idiot, not worth my time. We don't need to debate anymore. Right? That's kind of, that was, that was his perspective. You don't, you don't need to know anything more. Here's the thing. People in the first century knew that this didn't generally happen either. Okay? We think we're so scientific and advanced here in the 21st century, and we are, but we're also really full of ourselves, and we forget that there are some things that people in pre-modern times understood as well, like that for a pregnancy to happen, you kind of need something from a man and something from a woman. They got that. They understood that. They didn't think that storks delivered babies. That wasn't a thing, right? They, they understood these things. What's different in our world 
often is, is that there are people who believe that only the things that you can prove scientifically are actually real, actually exist. You can call, it, you can call this worldview naturalism. This idea that only what is observable scientifically is, is real, nothing outside of that. So there's no spirits, there's no divinity, there's, you know, there's no spiritual reality, anything like that. This is, the, this is like the Scooby-Doo worldview, right? This is, the, this is the Star Trek approach. Everything is kind of rational, scientific, that's it. The problem with this is that it, that, that assumption that only what you can prove is real is itself unprovable. You can't know that. How do you know that only what you can know is real and true? It's a non-scientific point of view. It's, it's a non-scientific position that says only scientific positions are the ones that are worth taking. It's a self-defeating thing. So this, uh, this sociologist and, and philosopher, Christian Smith, he, uh, he says it's like, it's like calling somebody on the phone to tell her that you can't call her to talk because your phone isn't working. You know, it just it doesn't work. It's self-defeating. And besides all of that, this, this naturalistic worldview can't actually explain how things came into being in the first place. You know, it's a pretty established scientific fact that the universe had a beginning. It's not eternal. It had a beginning point. And, you know, the prevailing theory is, is the Big Bang theory. Well, how do you, how do you get something from nothing? If you trace it back far enough, how did... How did something happen? How did something actually come into existence? Science can't explain that. So you, you go back far enough and you, you kind of, it seems unavoidable that there must be some kind of being that is powerful enough to make something out of nothing, to get this whole thing started. And once you have a being who is powerful enough to get things started, to get the universe moving, I don't think it's a big leap to say this being may also work in the midst of nature, this, this thing that he has created in ways that we may not always understand. In ways, for example, like a virgin conception. See, I, I just don't think that a lot of these objections that people have to this carry as much water as they think they do. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time on kind of the more intellectual, heady stuff here. And that's because when I preach, I know that, that there are a whole lot of different kinds of people listening. And, and some people are very like intellectual, philosoph philosophical, uh, rational. They, they, there are things that cause them to struggle to believe. And if we can kind of help work through some of those, those, those issues, those hindrances, and kind of point out some ways through them, I think that's a worthwhile thing to do. Especially when it, when it, it comes to something like this, the virgin birth. But others of you Maybe you're like, I don't care. I just want to know, so what? What impact does this actually make? What difference does it make if Jesus was born of a virgin or not? But let's finish up this morning by talking about that. I think in terms of what the point of the virgin birth is, what difference it makes, it comes back to that Hebrew word, that title, that Jesus bears, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the point of the virgin conception is that it says to us that God has come to be with us. You know, John, in his gospel, he doesn't have 
a birth story. He doesn't, he doesn't, t- or he doesn't tell it in the same way that Matthew and Luke does. He, do. he, he does it a little bit differently. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, if you skip down a little bit, you get to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And what we see in the virgin conception is that that was true from the moment that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. That from that moment, that one and only time in history where God and humanity have been joined together perfectly in this way was when Jesus was conceived in the womb. See, so many heresies, both ancient and modern, have said that Jesus was just a man, merely a man. Maybe he was a special guy, he was a great man, but in the end, just a man. Some other heresies have said, well, maybe he became more than a man at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended on him and became once again merely a man when God left him at the cross. But the virgin conception says that right from the very beginning, from the moment Jesus was conceived in the womb, God had come to be with us. He had made his dwelling among us. And what that means is that God knows us. He knows you. Isn't that the longing of the human heart to be known? For someone to truly know you? God knows you. The God who made the created realm, who made everything, the heavens and the earth, the God who is holy, 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 who is unique and unparalleled, the God who is transcendent became imminent. He came near to us. He didn't, he didn't look at all our brokenness and messiness and weakness and, and pain and suffering and just kind of go, ugh. He didn't stay distant. He didn't stay remote. He came near. He made his dwelling among us. He entered right in to the muck and the mire of human existence, which means that whatever you're going through, whatever it is that is in your life, he knows. We worship a God who is not a foreigner to this, but a God who entered into our world and took on flesh. The author of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is what priests do. Priests are intermediaries. They're they're bridges between God and humanity. And this is what Jesus has done. He has bridged the gap in a way that only he can. As fully God and fully man, he bridges that gap. And the Bible says that he is our great high priest. Now, high priests had the unique privilege of going into the Holy of Holies the center of the temple, once a year. Nobody else could go there. But the high priest would go there once a year to offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement that would cover over the sins of the people. That's what the high priest did. And so here's Jesus, who 
fully represents humanity, right from the virgin conception, has fully entered into humanity, represents humanity, yet, as Hebrews says, didn't sin. You heard Carly say that in her testimony. Here is one who never sinned. And so his sacrifice of himself at the cross is this perfect atoning sacrifice once and for all so that all who trust in him would have their sins forgiven. That, that barrier that exists between us and God, that, that chasm that could never be bridged, Jesus has bridged that gap. He has given himself so that our sins are removed. The burden is lifted off of us. The slate is wiped clean. The guilt of sin is abolished and we are reconciled to God. We are joined to him because we have this great high priest. Do you see the good news in this? That all of this is, all of this is promised in the virgin conception. It's fulfilled at the cross, but it's announced to us right here at the birth of Jesus. That here is a God who has created everything who has entered into this world, taken on flesh, knows you, gave himself so that you could be reconciled to God. See, the virgin conception isn't, it's not an idea. It's not, it's not a metaphor. It's not a doctrine to be argued over. It's not a myth. It's an event. It's an event that is meant to be believed in. An event whose implications are vaster than the universe. So that's really the question. Again, to come back to the same point we made a bunch of times today, this is the question, do you believe? How will you respond to the announcement that God has made his dwelling among us, that God has come to be with us? Jesus can be your cornerstone. He can lift you up. He can fill you with joy. You heard that with Carly earlier today. We witnessed that. He can do that in your life. Or... If you persist in that unbelief and that hard-heartedness, he will be a stumbling block for you. It comes down to your response. And so I pray, I pray that you would trust in him, that you would know who Jesus is and what he has done for you, that in him God has made his presence known among us. He has come to be with us. He knows us. He loves us. I pray that you would see the great lengths to which he went to save us. This was his plan all along. He told it through Isaiah. We see it. We see it in Luke. We see it in Matthew. This is what he's done. Let's, uh, let's pray and then let's sing our praises to him. The worship team, you guys can come on up. God, I, I, I simply pray for, for each one here today. I pray that you would revive their faith. And, and where there, there hasn't been faith, where there hasn't been trust, that perhaps today, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will speak to them and that you will, you will arouse that faith, that trust the announcement that the virgin conceived and gave birth to a child, Lord, represents the best news possible that God has come to be with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin. You didn't leave us, Lord, in the messiness and brokenness of our existence, but that you have come and you have made your dwelling among us. 
Jesus, thank you that you are our great high priest who bridges the gap between God and humanity and brings us into relationship with the one who made us. Lord, fill our hearts with joy today. Fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with faith. Lord, awaken us. May we not go from here with our eyes glazed over the same as we were when we came in, but awaken us, Lord. Make us come alive in gratitude and joy for what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through Him. May you know more of Him and make Him known today. We'd love to hear more from you.